Chapter 37 It was a major meeting of the party's working committee, where Kaurava policy and tactics were being discussed. The Gangaji group, already well on its way to dominance of the organization, these are the days, Ganapati, when Dhritarashtra and Pandu were still comrades in arms, was being prevented from carrying the day only by the defiance of Karna, whose scathing sarcasm about the other side was proving, as always, effective. This party is not going to overthrow the British by leading rabble through the streets, he was saying. The mightiest empire in the world, with hundreds and thousands of soldiers under arms, is not going to be brought down by the great unwashed. There is no Bastille to break open, no feeble king to overrun, but a sophisticated, highly trained, deeply entrenched system of government which we must deal with on its own terms. Those terms, gentlemen, and here... Karna fixed his audience with that steely gaze above which the half-moon on his forehead seemed to throb with a light all its own. Are the terms of the law, of familiarity with British constitutional jurisprudence, of parliamentary practice. We must develop and use these skills to wrest power from rulers who cannot deny it to us under their own rules. Karna looked around the table, confirming that every pair of eyes even the tilt of Dhritarashtra's unseeing profile was turned toward him. We cannot hope to rule ourselves by leading mobs of people who are ignorant of the desideratum of self-rule. Populism and demagoguery do not move parliaments, my friends. Breaking the law will not help us to make the law one day. I do not subscribe to the current fashion for the masses so opportunistically advanced by a family of disinherited princes. In no country in the world do the masses rule. Every nation is led by its leaders, whose learning and intelligence are the best guarantee of its success. I say to my distinguished friends, leave the masses to themselves, let us not abdicate our responsibility to the party and the cause by placing at our head those unfit to lead us. Of course, it was arrogant stuff, Ganapati. But Karna's was the kind of arrogance that inspires respect rather than resentment. God knows how far he might have gone and which direction the Kauravas might have taken were it not for the knock on the door that interrupted him in full flow. Excuse me, Mr. Karna, sir, coughed an embarrassed Darwan. But there is a man in a driver's uniform outside who says he must see you. I explained to him that you were busy and could not be interrupted, sir, but he insisted it was very important. Uh, I, uh, I I asked him who he was, sir, and he he said he, he was your father, sir. Karna's burnished skin paled through his lengthy explanation, and then a voice sounded outside. Let me in, I say. My son will see me. I must... And the door was flung open and a dishevelled figure appeared in a sweat-stained white uniform, peaked driver's cap in hand, anxiety distorting his face. Karna, he cried in anguish, it is your mother. The young man was on his feet. I shall come at once, Abhajan, he said, his face a yellow pallor. I see, said Tritarashtra mildly, before Karna had even reached the door. A driver's son has been lecturing us on the unsuitability of the masses. <laughs> Such ingratitude, murmured an obliging sycophant. 
Are we to let ourselves be swayed by the prejudices of someone who thinks he's too good for his parents? Asked Dhritarashtra. Karna shot him a look of pure hatred, which spent itself harmlessly on the dark glasses of its target. A hum of approval from around the table was cut short by the slamming of the door. Karna was gone, defeated, like so many of his compatriots, by his origins. That is how things often work out in our country, Ganapati. If a man cannot be overcome on merit, you can always expose him by uprooting his family tree. Family trees are versatile plants, Ganapati. In our country, incompetence and mediocrity also flourish under the shade of their leafy branches. So Karna strode out, and I followed him, muttering that I would be back. I still don't know what animated my impulse. Kunti had told me that she would come by the building when we were meeting in order to wait for her husband, and I was seized with the urge to escape the stifling air of our petty quarrels. It would, I thought, do me good to spend a few minutes in more congenial company. It was just as well. I reached Pandu's wife on the landing just in time to catch her as she swooned into my arms. I eased her onto a sofa and wondered, with all the incompetence of the lifetime bachelor, whether it would be appropriate to splash water on that still exquisitely made-up face. I had not come to a decision when Kunti stirred and opened eyes whose redness owed nothing to any cosmetic. It's him, she gasped. What's who? I asked, taken aback. The young man who just walked out. Mohammad Ali Karna? Is that who it was? I've heard them speak of him, but never seen him before. She began to sit down, the colour slowly pulsing back to her cheeks. What do you know of him, VVG? I wish I knew more than I did. After all, information was my speciality. With my sources, I knew everything about everybody. But Karna had proved an exception. Nobody knows very much about him, Kunti. He's a very successful Bombay lawyer, London-trained, little arrogant. And today we have just learned that he's the son of a driver. There was a little intake of breath. A driver? You know, a chauffeur. Karna left with him. His mother is apparently very ill. Kunti straightened herself on the sofa and pushed a strand of elegantly greying hair absently back from her eyes. His mother, she said faintly, is feeling much better now, thank you. It was my turn to swallow air. Her words woke me like the first shafts of sunlight through half-open eyes. Of course, the mystery of Karna's origin was resolved at last. The error of Kunti's adolescence, the result of the plausible temptations of a passing foreigner, the offspring of a travelling man of the world, who had travelled out of his mother's world in a small reed basket, had not perished. He had survived after all. He had been found and he had grown to become Muhammad Ali Karna. Kunti, I breathed. Oh, Viviji, he's alive, she said, her eyes glistening. I'm so happy. I tend to become the stern sage at the wrong moments. You must never acknowledge him, Kunti, I cautioned her. Do you think I don't realize that? The retort was sharp, but I shall never forget the pathos in her voice. Oh, Viviji, won't you find out more about him for me? Who is this driver? 
What exactly happened? Of course, I reassured her. With that basic clue, I knew that I, Ved Vyas, servant of another people's secrets, would have no difficulty. Indeed, a few discreet inquiries confirmed that Kunti's instinctive faith in her first, lost son's survival had been entirely justified. The basket had floated gently down the river and become immenemish in some undergrowth on the right bank. As fate would have it, for such things, as you well know, Ganapati, are willed from above, a childless couple was picnicking on the riverside. The husband was a humble, modern successor to the noble profession of charioteering, in other words, a chauffeur, and he had profited from his employer's absence to drive his wife to the river for a rare outing. Of such coincidences, Ganapati, is history made. The couple found the child and raised their hands heavenward in praise of Allah, for they were Muslims. And thus it was that the child they adopted, the natural son of Kunti, acquired the basic qualification for membership of the party that he would so distinctively lead one day, the Muslim group. The other elements of his curriculum vitae then fell implausibly into place. Implausibly, for few who saw the inner temple barrister would easily have guessed the prosaic facts I discovered or inferred. A slum boyhood, scholarships to secondary schools and college, a wealthy patron, his father's employer, the opulent Indradeva to finance a stay in London. Karna was not born to affluence as everyone thought, yet in a curious way, Ganapati, he was. But the more I probed, the more the story of Muhammad Ali Karna dissolved again into myth and speculation. Even when the incident of the chauffeur's arrival at the Kaurava party meeting became widely known, and the gossips and rumour mongers circulated fanciful and malicious versions of it to all who would listen, the golden youth remained untarnished. Instead, through the identity of those he called his parents could not be concealed, there were odd stories, odd stories, circulating about his extraordinary qualities, almost as if to make up for the apparent ordinariness of his ancestry. These stories stressed not just his brilliance, but the determination and self-control which would one day win him a country. A typical tale, quite probably apocryphical, Ganapati, told of how he came by his unusual name. His father, devout Muslim though he was, had been reluctant, the story went, to risk the slightest harm to his golden foundling and had left the boy uncircumcised. One day, the young Muhammad Ali, bathing in the river with his father, asked him why he was different in that crucial respect. Because you are not really my son, the grey-haired chauffeur replied. God allowed me to find you, but that did not give me the right to change the way he had made you. But I am your son, the boy declared. I do not care what I was before you found me. My past abandoned me. I will be like you whereupon he seized the knife and circumcised himself. Hearing of the boy's deed, the chauffeur's master, Indradeva, expressed his admiration of the lad. You shall be known in the glorious tradition of our national epic as Karna, he announced, the hacker off. And thus it was that Muhammad Ali, adopted son of a rich man's driver, became Muhammad Ali Karna, destined to be the star of the inner temple and defender of the mosque. You don't seem particularly convinced, Ganapati. Well, neither was I. It is only a story. 
but you learn something about a man from the kind of stories people make up about him.